Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Hello and welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair for Refugee Integration through Languages and Art. I'm Ariane Mirage, a visiting scholar from McGill University, where I'm a PhD student in the Department of Integrated Studies in Education. With me are two postgraduate students from Glasgow Universities who I will let introduce themselves. My name is Eva. I'm originally from the United States, but I've lived in Italy, Mexico, and Switzerland before finally settling here in Scotland, presumably for good. I'm doing my PhD on linguistic barriers to higher education for refugees in Scotland under the supervision of Alison Fitzgerald. My name is Sousan. I live in Edinburgh. I'm originally from Egypt. Uh, I'm settling here in Scotland for seven years. I'm an MPhil student at the Glasgow University. My research is about understanding the role of language and integration journey. So the title is ESOL from Refugees Perspective. Thank you. So I'll just give you a little background of my research. As you know, education is globally hailed a panacea, yet there is limited progress towards educational equity for all learners. More attention needs to be focused on the marginalized and minoritized to strengthen and manifest the ideal of education as a basic right. Considering the continual global refugee crisis, concerns about equity have gained importance, actually. So for minority groups, such as refugees, to overcome obstacles to academic achievements and challenges faced both personally and socially, fair and inclusive education is essential. So there's a growing need to understand the, that what education programs for refugee background students fail to consider. That is, the specific challenges that these uh, youth face. So navigating the education system in their resettlement country is particularly difficult for young adult refugees with disrupted education and financial worries. So these obstacles often create anxieties and hopelessness and can lead to academic attrition. Although there's an awareness of the difficulties that young adult refugees face resettling, there remains little research dedicated to this population, specifically to their progress within and through the adult education system. For this reason, in 2018, McGill University was commissioned by the Quebec government's Culture and Society Research Section, FRQSC, to carry out this study focused on tracking the experiences of Syrian refugee students attending the adult education sector in Montreal in order to understand their experiences and support their needs. Because, you know, obtaining a high school diploma is a significant milestone in any person's life, because without it, you don't have social or economic integration. It, it makes it very difficult. So this is a reality that many young adult refugees face in resettlement contexts. The study that I joined tried to identify a gap in the knowledge about young adult refugees, sometimes called the lost generation who don't actually fit into the traditional tracks of education due to their age between 16 and 24, and who must find alternative routes to continue their education, such as adult education schools. My doctoral research is based on the findings from this study, 
with the objective to learn what challenges young adult refugees face learning in resettlement contexts, specifically in Quebec, and what educational environments enable young adult refugees to thrive, integrate, and contribute to the new society. Evan, would you like to talk a little bit about your, your research? Yeah. So my research is also into accessing higher education for asylum seekers and refugees, and to a certain extent to any underrepresented group in Scotland. However, I started out my research with the plan to work with asylum seekers and refugees directly and to document their accessing or attempting to access higher education and university here, and in particular, accessing the quality of language instruction needed for university. And long story short, um, over the course of time, I decided that it would be better for me to get out of the way for researchers with lived experience of asylum seeking and, and refugee status to do that kind of work with that particular group. And instead, I decided that there was a gap in the literature of you know, research looking into the gatekeepers into university. So that is what my um, research, that's the current direction of my research. And I'm basically documenting the many networks of individuals, either at universities themselves, but also in partnership with third sector or, um, or government organizations or volunteer groups or working groups of academics that are sort of producing workarounds for uh, restrictive language policy, immigration policy, and also just trying to pave the way language-wise for refugees to go to university and to fulfill their aspirations, which I also feel that aspirations of these students are somewhat overlooked, even in within ESOL, with publicly funded ESOL, which is tends to be tends to focus on uh, preparing uh, migrants and refugees for immediate integration into the workforce, even if as a you know into very low skilled work. So that's basically my um, that's what my research is about. Very fascinated. In fact, there's a lot of links with what's happening in Quebec as well. Sausen? Yes. Here in Scotland, the second new Scots refugee integration strategy that started in 2018 till this year is considered by many to be a unique and valuable contribution for supporting refugees' integration. This current strategy is about to come to the end of its cycle. Uh, there will be soon a third iteration coming for this strategy. So there is therefore an opportune moment to conduct this research is about refugees integration in Scotland. So hopefully my research will feed into the development of the next strategy. The focus of this research will be mainly on the role of language in refugees' experience. And also reviewing literature, I find like decent amount of literature about ESOL provision from stakeholders. But what is missing that the point from refugees themselves, I want them to speak about themselves to, to express their needs and how ESOL can be improved to include all of them. Uh, so to do this, my project will analyze the current provision of ESOL and how this experience by new Scots themselves. In addition, 
The research aims to develop innovative tools to improve the integration process in Scotland. It will also seek to find ways of including and reaching more refugees and to find ways to encourage them to feel more settled in Scotland. My academic experience, in addition to my work with refugees, will be valuable in providing the necessary understanding and teaching English to speakers of other languages in both theoretical and practical way. Excellent. What we see, what we're hearing is that the refugees and asylum seekers, their voices need to be heard. Exactly. And there needs to be a recognition for their aspirations, is what Eva was saying, in terms of this popular profile of refugees as vulnerable, whereas they have great aspirations to get on with their school above high school and to be heard. That's really great. Yeah. This is uh, the commonality we have in our work. I was wondering if you would all be willing to address what it is that actually you see as your personal relationship or a reflection that you have in terms of refugee studies or refugees in general. In fact, my relationship with this study, I got on this project through my supervisor and my um, academic research has mostly been focused on the marginalized and minoritized and being from the West Indies originally uh, I came to Canada as an immigrant, a child, and I found it very difficult and trying to fit in. It was, uh, everything was very different, although I'm Anglophone and I was not a forced migrant when I came to Canada. Later in years, I became an expat mother and wife, and I moved with my children and my husband every two to three years for different projects for my husband. And each time I found myself I think it was disconnected, I could say, because I didn't know the culture. I didn't know the language. I didn't have an idea of the currency and how people functioned. I didn't know how to navigate the system. I didn't have any family. I didn't have any friends in each of these places, practically all the continents we lived on. And um, each time it was very difficult. It was very, very difficult for my children. They had to face all these challenges every time. And in that way, I... I empathize with refugee parents who have their children in a new system, in a new school, in a new world, and they don't know how it functions, how, for example, the students I've been working with, trying to understand the challenges they face. A lot of the challenges is not knowing really how the system works and the connection they have with their family in a place where they don't really have any connection outside to uh, supports and how difficult all that can be. My situation. I wasn't forced and I was an Anglophone, although these privileges I had did not save me from the, the human part of it, the difficulty of trying to integrate and to fit in. So I see a link from that perspective with my study. I have some overlapping with Ariane's experiences. Since 2004, I have been a trailing spouse to an academic and so I've moved from the United States to Switzerland. I started a family there. And then we moved to the UK, to Edinburgh in, in 2012. So I've basically been tagging along with my husband. And uh, when we came to the UK, I started looking for work. I was fully ready, more than ready to enter, to re-enter the workforce. 
And I had a real struggle. I, I faced a sort of double disadvantage of being, on the one hand, a woman reentering the workforce after a career break. And on the other hand, a migrant, albeit, as you said, Marianne, a, a privileged one with, you know, an Anglophone migrant. And I felt that I underwent a process of de-skilling in that my previous education, which was up to a master's level, and, and any of my previous work experience was just not recognized when I applied for work here. And so I even went through the process of speaking to somebody at job center and they told me, just looked at my CV and said, you know, you need to be looking for secretarial work, which I completely ignored because, not because I'm too good for secretarial work, but because I would be terrible at it. But anyway, I just remember thinking at the time, if this is happening to me as a, a, a white English speaking American, what is happening to everyone else? So anyway, I sort of accepted that I would have to sort of build something from the ground up here in Scotland. And I began retraining as a English teacher because I had a background, an academic background in linguistics. So I found work invigilating for the IELTS exam for the British Council and eventually got hired as an English for academic purposes teacher, which meant that I was teaching in the summer processionals at various universities. And these processionals had the purpose of bringing international students whose IELTS scores had missed the mark for their program, you know, sort of a crash course in English over the summer. So that put me into contact with many non-English speaking international students, mostly from East Asia and wealthy Arab countries. Then for bureaucratic reasons, if I wanted to continue teaching in these programs, I was required to requalify through further postgraduate study because my title of my previous master's just didn't have the right words in it. That's what it came down to. So I did a program in a master's in developmental linguistics at the University of Edinburgh. Developmental linguistics is about a scientific study of language acquisition, whether it be first or second language acquisition. And during that time, I did my dissertation on the effects of how post-migration stress affects second language learning for refugees. During that time and doing these experiments, doing language learning experiments with refugee students, I became aware that many of these asylum seekers and refugees were desperately trying to get back into their university studies to finish their interrupted studies or to begin them. And they told me that they were being told to be more realistic and that they should be looking for low-skilled work. And I just felt from my own experience, which is much less disadvantaged, that really that really bothered me in a, in a in a sort of productive way because then I decided to operationalize that frustration from my own experience and seeing it happening to other people into my PhD work. So that's why I decided that I would look into why, for example, asylum seekers and refugee students aren't treated as international students in terms of being included in pre-sessional English for academic purposes, why they would only had access to publicly funded ESOL, which was, you know, employment-based. That's sort of how it all came together sort of organically into my, my current PhD. You can see that, you know, from what you're saying, you don't have the same difficulties as, as someone who's a forced migrant. And yet facing these accreditation issues, because you come from somewhere else, that is, of course, I've dealt with the same things as I lived in all these different countries. 
we could just imagine the frustration of people who are forced to leave their home, not yeah. because they want to, but they have to, and then face all these obstacles to getting on with their lives, right? Yeah. My story started in my home country in Egypt. Uh, my undergraduate was um, to become a teacher. So I studied education, English department. I always loved English subject in the school and I get like high marks in this. After my graduation, I worked in international school. I was teaching English to primary school students. Then after the situation became not good in Egypt, after the military coup and everything, we had to find another home for ourselves. So when I was in Egypt, I used to have like Syrian neighbors who came to live in Egypt as a safe place. And I always feel, oh, they must be unsettled. They must uh, miss their country. And I always think how to help them, how to make them feel welcome. So that was my relationship with them as neighbors. But I never imagined that I can be in this situation. So after I got married uh, one year later, we find ourselves, my husband was TV presenter. And he was revealing the unheard truth of what is happening in Egypt. So, of course, he wasn't liked by the government. So we we need to find like safe place to live and start our life. At this time, I had my baby. She was like 40 days. And at this point, my husband said, no, we have to go out. We traveled to many countries before arrived to the UK because his friend, they say, you have a good case to seek asylum in like Holland or the UK or any country. Because if your passport came expired, you won't be able to travel to anywhere. So you have to get like passport for yourself and make papers. So we arrived to the UK after a long journey. And what happened that I was expecting myself to speak English. I'm English teacher in Egypt. So I, I thought I'll be very fluent. But what happened that I was looking at the officer at the airport and I didn't figure out what he's talking about, what he's speaking. He's speaking so fast for me. So I'm just, I can't catch any of what he's saying. And my husband say, oh, you should translate for us. Your English teacher. I say, no, I can't understand anything. And for you to try to recall all the separate vocabulary that you have, I have like a bank of, of vocabulary, but to collect them in meaningful sentence, it was a disaster for me. So I say, no. We should ask for interpreter for us. I, I can't uh, communicate. So I, I was, you know, feeling disappointed. I have all this knowledge and I can't speak with them at the airport. So it was in my mind, you know, like something in my mind. I want to know more. After two years, when we started feeling more settled, I studied TESOL Masters at Edinburgh University. It's the teaching English to speakers of other languages. And I attended the precessional course that Eva was teaching at this year. It was really helpful for me. And then I studied the TESOL master. And then when, when Eva sent me this advert about this MPhil opportunity, about refugee integration, and she said, you, you, you should make a proposal for this program. It's really matching to, to your life and your study and everything. So I tried to make my proposal to link between what I study in ESOL and refugee integration. So I submit my proposal and Alison, she made the interview with me, Alison, and then they like the proposal. They say, yeah, we, we like this link between the language and how this could feed into the refugee, improving the, the experience of refugees and how they integrate. And then, yes, I got uh, the scholarship from the UNESCO and I started doing it, yeah. 
we maybe should clarify, Alison is UNESCO Chair for Refugee Integration through Languages and Arts. And she is the person who invited me to be the visiting scholar and mentor me while I'm here for this uh, month that I've been here from McGill. And we all have that link in common, which yeah. has brought us to this podcast today. I'm fascinated, Alison, how did it feel to realize that your neighbor who was a Syrian refugee for whom you felt a lot of pity and sadness and to, yeah. to be surprised that your path was heading that way coming here. Of course, circumstances and everything is quite different, but to have to leave your home by force. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I always have the question, I have English knowledge and I couldn't speak. What about people with no English at all and they come in this same situation, they seek asylum, they need to deal with officers, with housing with they try to sort out everything like what happened with you and Eva when you move to another country and you, you need to understand the system from the beginning yeah no I think that it's key when you're doing any research that it be meaningful to you in some way and if you're going to produce meaningful research it has to be meaningful to you I mean it's not just about there's lots of ways you can make the world a better place but if it's a way that you feel personally connected to then you will you will produce more meaningful research, I think. Excellent. What difference do we see our work making? What impact do we hope we can bring from what we're doing? It's interesting. I thought my research, my methodology is ethnography. And I think I went into it thinking that I would be this impartial researcher that was just, you know, listening and observing without necessarily intervening in any way. But just, I think my personality does not allow me to do that. I suddenly became an informant in my own ethnography because I felt to ignore what I was doing in these networks, which I would, I would be doing anyway, and my connections to the networks that I'm, I'm observing. I didn't feel comfortable sitting back, didn't feel capable of sitting back and not participating. So I've just sort of, not quite an autoethnography, but my point is that if I see that I can make an impact some way now before publishing, before finishing my PhD, I'm not going to then hold back. So I think that um, my participation in these networks, I have helped link people together, individuals. I've, I've because I have a vested interest in describing these networks and getting to know them. I'm in situations where I say, okay, you know, you should really talk to this person. This, you two could collaborate on this. So there, there are sort of short-term impacts happening already because my research is about the goals of these networks. I am helping those networks collaborate by my very focus on them if that makes sense. But so, yeah, and then I, you know, I don't know how much impact I'll make with the actual publication of my PhD, but I know that I'm making an impact now by helping people network with each other and helping people with the shared goal. Okay, that's excellent. In fact, you, that's how Salson started her research. It's because you networked and helped tried to, to show her what was possible for her here. Yeah, that's fabulous. Well, I saw enormous potential there. So I so much great potential. I would hate to see it wasted. 
that would lead me to what I would want to do. Well, what I, I would see uh, making a difference or the impact. I, the work I've done has, was intentionally set up for, by the Ministry of Education for Quebec to have feedback about what the challenges are that, that these young adults were facing in terms of completing their high school and then what needs to be done. And when this research was completed, which was this year, uh, recommendations were made for, to the Ministry of Education. And ultimately, what I would like to see is that some of the recommendations that we've made based on what the findings show, the high aspirations that these students have, the uh, difficulty they have navigating the system, the, the, what the practitioners gave us input, because my research also interviewed practitioners within the education system who work with refugees, um, with students with refugee backgrounds, and their suggestion would be there should be more collaboration between the ministries um, in terms of supporting students, the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Immigration and the Ministry of Employment should be working together for each refugee instead of there being three different cases. And earlier, Eva, you said, you know, that there should be more collaboration in terms of what is best for the refugee, because they would be more directed to getting a job as opposed to trying to get to higher education. And the, the thing with, with the recommendations that we propose to the Ministry of Education, the, what I would like to see in terms of making a difference and impact is that educational policymakers take into account what these the voices, as what Southson said earlier, hearing the voices of the refugees and asylum seekers, what they're saying, what is needed, how help best to navigate the, the system. And part of that would mean teacher education. So teacher education is essential. And those who make the curriculum are the, the, the people in the Ministry of Education, at least in Canada it is, and with the Quebec Education Ministry. But to take into account what is being said so that on one hand, there could, could be more teacher education for refugees. So a matter of understanding of the needs of refugees or asylum seekers or forced migrants in terms of mental health, in terms of understanding diversity, understanding that their pre-settlement, post-settlement is just as disruptive, understanding that, that there is a, a need to help navigate these young people and the investment in terms of humanity and in terms of from a neoliberal perspective, if you will. Also, I mean, you get a job and you pay taxes. I mean, that's a reality as well. But I think that ultimately what I would like to see is change in terms of what is taught in school, how it's taught in school, and how teachers are taught and supported. Yes, they need to be supported as well to help with the diversity, with this influx of, of forced migrants that I don't think is going to stop. Yes, yeah, so the first impact, like I've mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, that my project is part of a bigger project um, and it will help in the improvement of the third education of this strategy. For local purposes, my research is Edinburgh focused and I think this is the first research to be conducted in Edinburgh because most of the research are in Glasgow than in the big city. But Edinburgh, there is less focus on this. So I'm very happy to focus because 
what I have experienced here that when I ask about any refugee matters, they say, oh, we, we don't have a council for refugees. You should ask the refugee council in Glasgow. So here, what I started to do as well, even with my participants that they, they participate, I try to also connect them to services. Yeah, we have English class. Some of them, they were waiting to just a place in the college and they, they do nothing. I say, why you didn't try community center? She say, what? What is community center? I say they teach English. They have like English cafes. It's yes, like once a week or twice a week, not enough. But at least she will start, she will communicate, she will attend something she likes, cooking or sewing or gardening, any activity to, to get out to the community, to, to have this courage. Some of them, she said, no, I never take the bus on my own. Uh, my children should be with me. My husband should be with me. So at least if you try to get her out to the life, she will, she will have this confidence. She will... She at least she can tell the bus the place that she wants to go, and he will tell her, Yeah, this is their stop. She will she will communicate. So this is uh, my aim to connect them, to ask them about um how how beneficial ESOL classes for them, because some of them they say we never sit in a class before. So for this purpose, if we we consider those people that they never have any formal education, at least we can do informal kind of classes for them. So like you've said, Ariana and Eva said that we should have collaboration between all parts of the community. Maybe the community center should collaborate with the college, with the, with the GP to give like mental health support, to deal with traumatic incidents that teachers find themselves in the situation they never came across this situation before. So if we have this collaboration and I manage to at least make this connection, it will be more than enough for me. And of course, from MPhil study, it will be, I won't have this impact, but what I'm trying to plan is to expand this to PhD project. So it has like more clear impact on all these um, nice aims in supporting refugees integration. Often, I think that you're already having an impact. I can say just from the talk that you gave at um, the evidence sharing event at COSLA, I thought that the talk that you gave to a room full of professionals and potential collaborators, that had an immediate impact already of putting um, your work on their radar. And yeah, I would say that, you know, maybe your actual document that you produced may not be go straight to the government, but you're, it's what you do along the way that also makes impact. And I think you're already definitely making an impact. Um, Thank you. Well, and also in the community that you're, you're, you're collecting data from, you're, you're making an impact in that community, but also in the sort of third sector community that you presented your talk to. Yes, you're right, Eva. And through Ava, I was able to go to see Syrian um, Futures, a film that was made by young adults who reiterated the exact same issues that the students that I interviewed in Quebec from Syria that they were facing. So th the three of us already have this connection and networking that uh, we can see that if we keep going and we keep spreading the word and the network we will make the impact that we want to ultimately yes. you're right you're right Ariane. it's uh, impacting in the continuation of of uh, moving forward progress in terms of 
there being more awareness and an understanding of the needs to recognize diversity, but the challenges that forced migrants face compared to those who, even in Canada, I mean, I was an immigrant um, from the Caribbean. And when I moved to Canada, it was very difficult because, well, I didn't look like anybody that the white dominant culture then. And I, I had an accent though I um, was Anglophone and I had all these challenges and difficulties and that was my family's choice to move there. So I just know that uh, things will be getting better and the diversity and migration won't stop, but uh, nor will our research and our work together, right ladies? Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think we came to the end of our conversation. Thank you for listening and you will find more information about us in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.